0: So it's in our security interest to get religious freedom as this bedrock foundational uh, human right uh, that people respect.
1: It is the week of August 8th, and welcome to the third episode of our summer podcast series, Breaking Chains, Fighting the New Global Repressors. I'm Lester Munson, your host. All over the world today, we are witnessing nation states such as China, Russia, and Iran cracking down on populations within their borders and expanding their repressive aims internationally. In our summer series, I will talk to a range of special guests about the stark reality we now face, as the rapid development of technology makes it easier for nation state actors to commit Widespread human rights abuses, what can we do to confront these abuses and protect global security? Today's episode features Ambassador Sam Brownback, the Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom at the U.S. State Department during the Trump administration. Prior to his service as Ambassador, he was Congressman, Senator, and Governor of the great state of Kansas. He has a unique perspective of how religious freedom directly relates to our nation's national security, and we are thrilled to have him provide his insights on how religious persecution is often a key ingredient to global repression. This episode contains descriptions of graphic violence that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Ambassador Brownback, thanks for uh, joining us here on Fault Lines. Hey,
0: happy to do so, and uh, thanks for having me on and discussing these topics.
1: Well, we appreciate all of the uh, the hard work you've done over a long career in in public policy, and uh, and so we're really really thrilled you could join us. Can we can we start off by talking about your role in the last administration at the State Department, uh, and and how that was created, and what your function was in terms of American diplomacy? Yeah, the position I was in was
0: Ambassador at Large for International Religious freedom, it was a position created by Congress oh, 20 years ago now uh, when they passed the Religious Freedom uh, Act, International Religious Freedom Act, and it created the ambassador position. And so I was in that. What was unique about this last administration was uh, the emphasis they put on religious freedom as a cornerstone or foundational human right, that if you can get this one right, you can build your human rights portfolio of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and a number of other things and that what we had been seeing taking place was a decline in religious freedom, a decline in the human rights project. Uh, And so it was just a a different tactic than State Department and the U.S. administration had taken previously. And and I I think it was the right tactic. And I, I
1: think We really got a lot of things launched and moving forward. You know, there's this kind of uh, everyday debate over interests versus values in terms of American foreign policy, what we should be pursuing. It would seem at first blush that religious freedom is something that falls in the values category. How does religious freedom actually directly relate to U.S. national security?
0: Well, for one, if we don't get moving forward and get religious freedom, you're going to have the clash of civilizations around the world. And indeed that 's what 's happening in places like Burma right now, where you 've got a buddhist dominated country pushing out a Muslim minority I mean, this is the This is the classic Huntington clash of civilizations, and you just see it all over the world. You see it in Nigeria you uh, see it really in a, a number of different places so it 's in our security interest to get religious freedom as this bedrock foundational. Uh, human right uh, that people respect. So you don't have that. And we don't have all these other actions we need to do. And we don't have all these refugees that are pushed out of a particular country because they're not part of the of the dominant religion. So I I think it's I think it's clearly one of our values. But it's also interestingly plays into our interest very directly of not wanting these conflicts
1: or all these refugees uh, being created around the world. So every, every year, the State Department puts out a list of countries of particular concern, which are places where religious is, it's felt that religious discrimination is happening. And then there's a, a special watch list category for countries where we think things might be going in the wrong direction. Can you, can you talk about the, the production of that list and the impact it has on those countries that are listed and how our diplomats can use it to you know, push for change. We spend a full
0: year gathering the data on every country around the world about what's happening in their their space on religious freedom, religious persecution. Uh, it's an exhaustive effort, and the the product we come out with is the gold standard on religious freedom around the world. It really details it. We take that data then uh, and say, okay, which countries are the worst? countries of particular concern, which countries are trending seriously in the wrong direction that we want to warn them before they become a CPC country. And that's the special watch list. And so it it goes through a lot of negotiations, massaging um, before the secretary makes the final decision on, OK, these are the countries of particular concern. These are special watch list countries and puts those uh, those out. And this involves the the desk for those countries, the bureaus, our office. And then once a country is deemed a country of particular concern, you know, they then have to decide, well, is this something that bothers us? You know, like, for instance, in the case of North Korea or China, they just kind of show it off. Uh, but in a case like Vietnam, when they came off the list or Uzbekistan, uh, this was something they saw as really hurting their relations with the United States and the broader world. And so they wanted to get off of it. Uh, we also I also think just strongly that if a country wants to grow and prosper and integrate itself into the global community, you just you can't be on these CPC list. Uh, this just means you're,
1: you're really failing a fundamental human right. How did you see those lists evolve over your time as the ambassador?
0: Um, You know, we saw some changes uh, in it. We saw Uzbekistan come off the list, and I worked hard with them to get them off of that list saying, look, let's let's start a a program of action here where you guys can get off of this list, and it's going to help your development. It's going to help your attraction of foreign capital into the place. We saw Nigeria go on the list because there was a, a just a really effectless a government that was allowing um, really a, a, a killing of Christians by radical Muslim groups. And, they, and the government was also allowing this terrorist convention to come together in Nigeria of all these outside uh, radical fundamentalist Islamic groups that were coming in and, and killing Christians, but also Muslims that they didn't agree with. And we really wanted to push the Nigerian government. You've got to to address this, we, Nigeria cannot become a failed state. It's too big; it affects the whole area. And so, we, we really were pushing them hard about that. And uh, but
1: unfortunately, we weren't able to get very far with them. So, I might I might be crossing a little bit of a line here. But as as the internal conversation inside the State Department occurred over the year to produce the list, did did that process result in any countries not making the list that you thought should have?
0: Uh, no, uh, none that come to mind. Unfortunately, there are there are things that you look at and you're weighing on this to make the determination. And there were there were countries that you know that came on the list that I was looking at as going, gosh, I didn't know that about them. And then as we started studying the report that the embassy was producing, you're just going, boy, this is not good. Uh, and so there was some there was some surprises of people that got on the list that were just not even on my radar screen. And still we started and still I started reviewing the reports that were coming. In from the embassy,
1: how well would the report become integrated with the other uh, goals and kind of uh, priorities the U.S. had for the relationship with those countries? Did that? Did you? Did you feel like this? This really informed the rest of the work that our ambassador in that country was doing, and the and the rest of the State Department policy apparatus was working on.
0: By and large, yes. But then there were some countries where the the desk on that country. Just didn't want anything to do with this report. Uh, Nigeria. Uh, was an example of that. They did not want any discussion of Christian-Muslim conflict in Nigeria. They just saw that as explosive. And if that discussion starts taking place, this is going to careen out of control. And so they would push to squash it. Burma was another one where the desk um, in the country was just going, no, we don't want to talk about religious persecution here because it's going to drive the Burmese into the hands of the Chinese. Uh, and you're going. <laughs> they're kicking these Muslims out that if they were Buddhists, they wouldn't be kicking them out. How can you not talk about this? And plus, I've just never seen it be effective where the United States says, okay, we're going to kind of hold back on what we really think is the situation in the hopes that this is just going to make the relationship between us and that country better and and they'll grow out of this particular problem. I've just, I've never seen it work. You've just got to speak truth and be willing to call it out wherever it is, and you and you deal with the situation that comes from it. But when you're not speaking truth and speaking it clearly, you you're really asking for for problems, and you're just going to be accused of favoritism or any number of other things, and you lose your credibility.
1: and and we, we can't afford to do that. So in addition to uh, kind of public uh, transparency on what was what is happening in a certain country and kind of this judgment from the United States in public, what other tools did you have as the ambassador to work with a country? Were there aid programs? Were there sanctions, carrots and sticks? How did, Were there any other tools in the toolbox you used to affect change?
0: You know, prior to my coming in, it was rare that we would ever singularly sanction a country for religious persecution, we might join Saying, you yeah, they've got a a gender issue or they've got a free speech issue along with a security issue. And we'll 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 co-tie these um, sanctions on on multiple issues. Uh, But what we started to do was actually uh, sanction countries uh, off of religious persecution issues. And then one of the more effective things that we did, and I I didn't really think it worked that much at the time, but we started sanctioning individuals that were involved in it. So the head of a prison in China that's uh, housing, um, or well, the head of the Politburo over Xinjiang, uh, we sanctioned him, and that was the first time we'd ever sanctioned a Politburo member. But I mean, what he was doing was was horrific. Operated concentration camps, at a virtual police state, uh, just. It went on and on. And um, and I I was really pleased we were able to call out individuals on it it, and and their families. So when we sanctioned Chen Kuanguo, the party secretary over Xinjiang, who had been the party secretary over Tibet and had done the same thing there, uh, it sanctions him and his family. Uh, And they they didn't like us doing that to a Politburo member. But he was the he was the attack guy for Xi Jinping. Uh, in dealing with religious minorities. And the other thing that was just really terrifying to me was he was beta testing this future of oppression, this high-tech future with cameras and artificial intelligence system and genetic sampling and tracking all cell phone use, and then now going to digitizing the currency where they could shut the money off for an individual. Uh, I thought, boy, we're going to see this system in a lot of places around the world if we don't
1: get out ahead of it, pretty Orwellian. It sounds to me uh, like this really kind of gels with the approach taken in the global Magnitsky legislation, which which highlights the role of individuals in human rights abuses, you know, even beyond religious discrimination. Do you think this is a real trend in American foreign policy?
0: I do. And it's it's more effective before we would sanction broadly a country. Well, you end up hurting a lot of poor people a lot of times. Whereas if you can target just the leadership and make it personal to them and then get the Europeans in on it if we can as well, so that they can't just move their money to some other uh, Western haven or have their kids go to school in Europe instead of the United States. um, You know, we need we need to work with our Western allies on this. But I, I think these are they're very effective, targeted ways to keep from hurting just a broad swath of people and not really getting at the leadership where you actually do get. Uh, At the leadership, and then I just think it's important for us to be willing to stand up and to speak this out, uh, to speak the speak the truth of here is what Chen Guo is doing in Xinjiang, and he is directly tied to Xi Jinping. He's on the Politburo. He is funded. They have doubled his police funding, more than that, tripled it. And you have to see these things as associated with the direct leadership in China.
1: How have you uh, evaluated the Biden administration in terms of continuing the work you did? Are you seeing them building on it? Have they changed it? Is there anything you're concerned about?
0: Uh, You know, I'm very pleased that they've continued most of the sanctions on China and they continue to call what was going on in Xinjiang a genocide. Uh, I I think that's partially U.S. domestic politics because the country in the United States has moved away from Chinese Communist Party. The the American people are anti China Communist Party now. So they really couldn't kind of lift all these sanctions and kind of go back to business as usual. One of the things that I I think they've done a a poor job on uh, is they now are just throwing religious freedom in the, you know, okay, it's just one of a whole bunch of human rights. Uh, and that tactic, which we've seen being used for the last 20 years has gotten us into a declining human rights situation globally. I, I think we're much better off focusing in on these basic building blocks. And the other thing that's nice about really uh, targeting in on religious freedom is you have 80% of the world Adheres to a faith or claims a faith of some type. So, by championing the human rights of eighty percent of the world, you've got a lot of backers and people that will help you uh, and 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 leverage your push if if you engage with them. So, we did ministerials on religious freedom. We brought in religious leaders. We brought in government leaders, and we really have been getting a grassroots movement going around this fundamental uh, human right. And it's going to help the whole human rights project. The the other one I want to mention that I think that a lot of times the left gets caught up in is they think if you're supporting religious freedom, you're opposed to LGBT rights, that these two are in conflict. And that's just not true. We, We did the survey in my office. The countries that are best on religious freedom are also best on LGBT rights. And you think about it for a little bit. It goes it's to the fundamental dignity of the individual. I may not agree with your religious choice. I may not agree with your lifestyle decision. But I believe you have the inherent dignity as an individual to choose whatever it is that that you choose, as long as you're not hurting somebody else. And I, I really think we ought to see these as as rights that that are supportive of each other around this fundamental issue of human dignity to, to choose. I think Secretary
1: uh, Pompeo, if I'm remembering the title correctly, commissioned a report on a kind of inherent human rights or individual rights that when it came out, I think, took a, a similar approach. And it did get some criticism from the LGBT community. Talk a little bit more, if, if, if you don't mind, about how you think those two approaches are not necessarily in conflict and they really can build on each other. And we may have a lot more in common from these two different perspectives than we realize.
0: Yeah, the Secretary's report did get uh, some pushback uh, from places because the left generally was saying, you're creating a hierarchy of rights, and we don't believe that. And what he was trying to do with that report was trying to get back to the fundamental ones that were decided in 1948 by the UN. You're just saying, OK, look, we've had this proliferation of human rights categories, and you think this one's one, you think that one's one, and uh, uh, and you think abortion is one, and somebody else does doesn't think abortion is one and what he was trying to do with that report is let's let's just get back here to the ones that were all agreed to by all these countries in 1948 by the UN and let's start just emphasizing and and really getting these right and we can build then the human rights project off of that and and I thought that was really a a wise way to go, uh, where we've been losing ground on human rights. Let's get back to something we all agree upon, and then let's start fighting from there. So I, I just I, I thought that was a good approach. You know, I just. These two areas didn't used to be in conflict. Uh, I remember doing the um, Religious Freedom Restoration Act when I was in the United States Senate and working uh, on that, and that passed with 95 votes, because everybody was for religious freedom. They didn't see that, you know, you you choose your religion, I choose mine, you, you've got a different set of values than I do, uh, okay. Uh, the country was built on religious freedom, but then it started to get in this Fight and competition that's saying, well, okay, you've got traditional values and that conflicts with uh, some people's views of Of saying, well, mine may not be at a traditional value, but I don't like to be excluded. Uh, And it it really started in this conflict category. And I I really wish we could back up and say, we don't agree on some of these issues, but we do agree on dignity of the individual and the right of the individual to choose their own path that as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. And I, I really... I think we would be better off if we could get to that kind of conversation. Totally
1: agree. Uh let's let's get back to Burma for a second. I know you did a lot of traveling in the job as as ambassador for religious freedom. Tell us a little bit about when you when you went to Burma, what you saw on the ground and whether any of that kind of changed the the work that you did on this issue.
0: Well, they wouldn't let me in Burma. Uh, I got to Cox Bazar in Bangladesh and and interviewed and talked with a number of the Rohingya uh, that were there. And I, I wish they would have let me in Burma, but they weren't. They weren't going to let me come in there. But my conversations with the Rohingya, I, I was appalled. Uh, I, I remember specifically interviewing, oh, about seven or eight random uh, children under the age of 10. They just kind of gathered around me at the refugee camp, and which is right on the Burmese-Bangladesh uh, border. Uh, and I'm just looking at these little kids and just saying, uh, asking them, if, have you seen a family member uh shot? Uh, Or killed. And five of the seven had. I mean, they they held their hand up, or they said, you know, my brother was killed, or my dad was shot, or, and I mean, you know, these kids aren't, they just had randomly walked up to me. And I I just thought, man, that is a high percentage of kids that have seen a family member killed or wounded. Uh, And I I thought the real horror of, what was there was likely to come out and did later and has now been categorized a genocide and it, and it deserved it. And then I remember interviewing a, a mom who witnessed her daughter raped, stabbed, stabbed in her private parts um, by a Burmese soldier. And, you know, and the mother's just wailing, telling me this story. And I'm just, you know, what what kind of inhumanity, can you get inside of yourself to be willing to do that to another human being? But Those things, they do. They last with you and and you carry them and you try to
1: try to bring things to justice. Uh, Let's let's talk about Saudi Arabia a little bit. Of course, President Biden just went there uh, after saying uh, back during the campaign that he wanted to turn it into a pariah state. Now he's a famous fist bump with the the crown prince. Uh, Saudi Arabia has got some religious freedom issues, and I'm putting it mildly. Uh, what are, what are your thoughts about the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia through this this lens of religious freedom?
0: Uh, you know, I when President Biden's doing that, I'm just kind of going, boy, just be careful what you say. Particularly, I think that Biden was thinking, oh, we're at the end of big oil and we're not going to need uh, oil in the future that much and we'll be able to supply our own. And But it's a commodity. And in, any, in commodity markets, I'm from Kansas, we've got a lot of commodity markets we deal with. They go up and they go down. And and supply and demand and you know you just got all these situations with it and so i i thought you know you you've gonna you know, mess with something like that you're gonna eat the eat your words uh you know what I have seen taking place, and I was in Saudi Arabia two months ago, and I saw the head of the World Muslim League walk in the room in Saudi Arabia with the head uh, Orthodox Christian in the world, uh, Patriarch Bartholomew of the Greek Orthodox Church, cross on his neck, um, walking in, TV cameras on it, broadcast throughout Saudi Arabia. And I thought, I didn't think I would ever live to see the day that something like that would happen. And there was all sorts of different religions in the room. And they were coming at it from a standpoint of, let's talk about our kind of our our common value base. We're not going to talk about our religions, but we're going to talk about the common values that we serve. Um, And to me, it was really the Saudis trying to figure out how do we open up a little bit from this Wahhabism uh, and to try to attract investment in this country beyond oil, uh and they're build, building this fabulous city, Nome, uh, and that's going to have to have billions of foreign investment dollars come into it to make it work. And they've watched the Emiratis really create a, a globalized community. Uh I think they're trying to replicate it. Uh, so, I mean, I'm actually hopeful for the Saudis. They've, they've had lots of problems. They've exported a lot of militant Islam is uh, Islamist but a lot of the rest of the world's rejecting those now and the Saudis don't want them now the current leadership so I'm I, th- I think we've got some room to work with them uh, now it's just it gets to be real uncomfortable because you know you' you've what happened to Khashoggi? Uh, what about there? It's the only country in the world without a single church, not one. You know, you're kind of come on, guys. Uh, we need you to step up here. But I, I think now is really, honestly, a time we should be engaging with the Saudis to push them because I've seen more openness last couple
1: of years than I've ever seen before. You uh, you mentioned Nigeria and and um, uh, what's going on in that country uh, with some of these Muslim extremist groups. I'm thinking in particular Boko. Haram. Have you seen improvement in the situation in Nigeria since you were working on this issue?
0: No, it's gotten worse. And their attacks are weekly now. Some of them get in the press, some of them don't. A lot of Catholic priests are getting killed. Uh, whole church services are being shot up. It's, it's just getting worse. And yet, uh, the administration, this administration took them off the list of countries of particular concern. Uh, and I think they did that, that the bureaucracy won the fight that I'd been in with them. They, they just don't want any discussion of. Christian Muslim conflict. And and yet I had a I had an attorney general of one of the African countries tell me one time, he said, you know, in, in place of the old tribalism that we used to fight each other off of, kind of the new tribalism is Christianity versus Islam. And and you know and you've got that fault line through middle of Africa where you've just got a large Muslim population buttoned up against a large Christian population. If 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 we don't get on top of this and really work to Get on top of it and address it directly. You're going to see lots of carnage in Africa. It's it's really setting up for it. And these militant Muslim groups—that's what they want. They they want the carnage. They they want uh, failed
1: states. Uh, that's where they thrive. I, I want to kind of pull way back and, and ask you. Um... Uh, kind of big picture about the the different interests uh, and the different approaches of the legis our, our legislative branch of Congress and of the administration, the executive branch. How important do you think it is? For Congress to play a direct role in making sure an administration is focused on certain priorities, that these kind of uh, that the work of Congress can actually be additive uh, or even make an improvement upon the efforts of a president to accomplish foreign policy goals. What you you were in the Senate for a long time, you were in the House for a little bit, you were in the in the last administration. I've, I just love to hear your thoughts on that big picture question.
0: I think this is absolutely essential Congress to do, and I think if an administration is wise and not just. Party, artisan, they'll use that. A congressman or a senator can get out there on a topic much further than an administration can get out there, can get out there much earlier than an administration normally would get out there, and they can kind of clear the path, or they can find the path, mm-hmm. or they can address the topic. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times you're in an administration, you're really hidebound bound by treaties and agreements and the desk and all that. And then you get this senator out there on point, <laughs> Uh, on something, and you're you, you need to be watching him and, and using him, or even suggesting to him, hey, why don't you go out there and let's test the water uh, on this? Because they, these really need to work together, and they can, and I think they do. I, I would go up on Capitol Hill until they jerked my chain back, and would suggest to people, hey, why don't you why don't you go over here? Uh, look at this one, uh, and you know they could get out there, and you know, and then they start saying, "Yeah, we don't do things that way." And I'm kind of going, "Well, it's too bad because I I think it really is a a, a good way to address issues. Take for instance, you uh, uh, yeah, well, China is a great one, uh, an example. Really, the the administration has been led by members of Congress on the issues of China, and for a long time they were in a distinct minority, and then. All of, then all of a sudden, the rest of the world caught on. To, Xi Jinping is really just another Mao, uh, and we got to confront
1: these guys. All right. So, exit question: What are your thoughts about Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan yesterday?
0: Uh, I'm glad she did it. You know, once once you say you're going to do something like that, or it's out there publicly, you have to go through with it because you you I think you really risk that the Chinese think that they can just bully and and um uh, shout you down and you'll and you'll turn and run. I I I disagree with the speaker on a lot of things but her and I have agreed on China a great deal. She's been very good uh on China. She's very good on how uh, on Tibet. She's been very good on religious freedom. She opposed the uh the popes Making an agreement for the Roman Catholic bishops to be cleared through uh, uh, Beijing, which I thought was a terrible thing for the Catholic Church to uh, to do, and and she contacted the papacy and I spoke with them about it. So I, I disagree with her on a lot of, particularly on social policy issues,
1: but China, she's been out there and tough and I, I appreciate and admire it. Ambassador Brownback, uh, thank you again for being on the podcast this week. We uh, We loved hearing from you. This was really a terrific session. Thank you. My pleasure. All the best to you guys. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Gabriella Hensinger and Gabriel Otis for research and production assistance. Join us next time as we continue through the summer to shed greater light on the new means of repression highlighting aggressive expansionist policies that violate the rights of citizens across the globe and propose serious solutions the u.s can take to secure and promote democratic values